Today's sermon text comes from Psalm 97. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. This is God's word. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tendria. We're getting into a new series this week. It's going to be about an eight-week series, and uh, it's going to be on a very uh, non-controversial topic. Um, you know, going to be pretty, pretty easy to get through this. Um, in Luke chapter 1, verses 52 and 53, Mary, who has just been told by an angel that she is going to give birth to a new king, That must have been terrifying for Mary, who was living in Palestine. Not Israel, but Palestine. I make that distinction because Israel had long been conquered by the Romans. And that the name of that region which encompassed Israel and modern-day Syria was called Palestine. It was a Roman region, a Roman uh, uh, area. And the king of that region was Caesar. And so an angel appears to Mary, a Jewish woman, and tells her, you are going to give birth to a king, and beautiful things are going to happen, such as Israel's enemies being subdued and Israel being lifted up. That must have been horribly frightening. Imagine imagine getting that prophecy in the heat of the Cold War, living in 1950s communist USSR, and an angel appearing to you and telling you, you're going to give birth to a child who is going to lead a democratic surge in the USSR and forever change the history of that country. Would that scare you? Yes. Yes, it would. Later, she finds herself standing in Elizabeth's house, the Elizabeth who is the mother of John the Baptist. And she feels the Holy Spirit come upon her and she begins this praise, this song of praise to God. And here are some of the words that Mary says, this little teenage girl who's been impregnated by the Holy Spirit, who's going to give birth to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And she says these words in Luke 1, 52 and 53, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Does that sound political to you? He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. That is a political statement and a dangerous statement to make when you're living in an empire that ruthlessly puts down any hint of rebellion. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. So there's a change of political leadership that will come with Jesus Christ's rule. 
Wow, that's unsettling. Exciting, but unsettling. Maybe scary. And then she goes on to say this. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has filled the hungry with good things. And that's good. I imagine, you know, church people standing on the sides of the road, hand and all, handing out food to poor people. That's one thing. But it's that next phrase that lets us know there is a political impulse to this when she says, and the rich he has sent away empty. She's talking about societal flipping. She's talking about political transformation. That probably when she said these words, she had no idea what she was talking about. And 2,000 years later, we're still trying to figure out the implications of these words. But one thing is clear, is that this is a political statement. Did you know that it is impossible to separate God from politics? Because God invented politics. When he told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, he was telling them, govern the earth well. Be political. Be political. What you're not going to hear in this series is that Jesus-centered politics is inactive and withdrawn. That is not what you're going to hear this series. But you're also not going to hear us telling you, teaching you, goading you to put your trust in human institutions or in humans, but in Jesus himself. What does that look like, though, when we have human kings? What does that look like? God has something to say about the issues that concern us. God has an opinion on racism. God has an opinion on violence and crime. God has an opinion on the future of social security. God has an opinion on global terrorism. God has an opinion on the national debt and the economy. God has an opinion on poverty. God cares about the questions surrounding the sexual revolution, LGBTQ, same-sex marriage, etc. God has an opinion on the scourge of abortion. God even has an opinion on the gray area ideological differences regarding stuff like universal health care or educational reform. God cares about all of this stuff. And because God cares about this stuff, we should care about this stuff. We should care about it. Because it's impossible to separate God from politics. The end of our Bibles tell us about a returning king, a ruler. Someone who is going to reign, who will judge all of the nations, all of them. That's politics, my friends. The end of our Bibles tell us about a time that will last forever when all sin and sickness and suffering and injustice are eliminated from the face of the earth and the people of God will dwell in eternal security and love in the presence of God. That is political. That's a new kind of government that we're thinking about. A new kind. Today I want to give you three points. What the believer's posture should fundamentally be when we interact with politics. we got eight weeks to cover a lot of stuff. Eight weeks isn't even enough to talk about this subject today. 
But today I want to talk about what you and me, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you should have a particular biblical Jesus-centered posture when it comes to politics. And I just want to give you three points on what that looks like today. The first one is don't panic. Don't panic. I could probably stop right there. I think that says that says a lot to a lot of people. Psalm 97.1, our text for today. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands, not the American coastland, but the many coastlands be glad. Notice the tense of that sentence. It is present tense. It is not the Lord will reign or the Lord has reigned. The Lord reigns right now. Right now, God reigns. And as I said already, that word for rule or reign is a political word. God is king. He reigns over everything. And in, and after he says, our God reigns, he chases that with the biggest implication in this entire chapter. Rejoice. Rejoice. In other words, we don't have to walk in fear. We don't have to walk around continually outraged and angry. We don't have to walk around feeling these toxic feelings all the time. We can rejoice. And, and, and sometimes we've got to fight to rejoice. But we can rejoice in God because He reigns over all of the earth. He reigns over all of the earth. Psalm 97.9, for you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth, not parts of the earth, over all the earth, you are exalted far above all gods. Did you know that God reigns over powers seen and unseen, over all of them? He reigns over SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States. He reigns over the Supreme Court. I'm not saying that every ruling of the Supreme Court pleases God. But somehow, mysteriously, God reigns over SCOTUS. Did you know God reigns over the President of the United States? He reigns. You're going to feel panic. Maybe even some of you will feel terror after the November elections. You can take confidence in the fact that God reigns over every person, over every molecule that makes up our universe. He reigns. He reigns. God reigns over ISIS. Did you know that? He reigns. God has not been thrown off by people or institutions. God reigns. God also reigns over unseen principalities such as systemic racism and hatred and bigotry. God reigns. He reigns. Did you know that? And because He reigns over all of this, we can rejoice. We don't have to be controlled and vexed by fear and anger and anxiety. God reigns. 
I love what Colossians 1, 15 and 16 says. It's a, the beautiful Christ hymn that Paul gives the Colossians. He says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. So yes, while all things were made for Him, do all things function according to His his will. No. That's where political engagement and even more importantly, spiritual engagement is required from each of us. But everything that was made, everything from the lowliest demon to the most uh, uh, lofty ruler of our country, everything that was made was made for the glory of Jesus. His glory. Jesus' reign, as one writer said, is permanent. Jesus' reign is absolute. Jesus' reign is flawless. And Jesus' reign is worldwide. But if we give in to panic, panic has terribly adverse effects on us and our world. For instance, panic impairs our objectivity. We don't discern very well when we're in panic. This is why when Paul wrote to his son in the ministry, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. He told him, man, fight fear. Stir up the gift of God that's within you because if you do that, you will have God's power, God's love, and some translations say a sound mind. If you're walking in fear, don't expect to have a sound mind. And if you don't have a sound mind, don't expect to have a sound opinion, a sound viewpoint. Panic also makes us gullible to fear-mongering and conspiracy theories that shroud all of the media apparatus in our country. Panic does that. Panic makes us gullible to these things. And the conspiracy theories are on both sides. Why do we feed on this stuff? Because it confirms our biases and our fears and we feel emotionally affirmed that we're being rational and even behaving, behaving nobly when we fret, when we fear, and when we walk in outrage. We feel noble, right, justified to allow these feelings to continue to be stirred up within us. The scriptures tell us don't allow those things to be stirred up within you. You stir by the power of the Holy Spirit a love and devotion to God, a sound mind, not fear. Panic also makes us desperate. It makes us desperate. And viewpoints that are shaped by desperation are almost always naive, biased, or oversimplified. And where that hits us between the eyes as a church is that kind of panic causes us to vilify people with opposing views to us. There's no nuance. There's bad guys and there's good guys. Are we really to believe that there's only bad guys and good guys? And one party or one group or one tribe is made up of the bad guys and one party or one tribe or one group is made up of the good guys? Come on, my friends. Let's look more closely into these issues. Let's look more closely. Panic makes us desperate. 
panic leads to the idolization of human leaders and of human institutions. Partisanship. The GOP can do no wrong. The Democrats can do no wrong. Or whoever else. The Green Party, if that's who you are. Six of you. Uh, I'm kidding. So, <laughs> Sorry, if you're a green person, no, no offense. No offense. Um, what happens is mean-spirited tribes are formed around these idolizations. Psalm 97.7 says this, All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. And then he says, Worship him, O you gods. Now, I know what we're talking about. You know, this is probably uh, about 900 years before Jesus. And so we're talking about pre-modern ancients who actually believed in other gods. These are people who believed that they should worship stone or wooden images. But let's not forget that in the minds of the ancients, there was no separation of church and state, so, uh, so to speak. These same people who worshipped these gods also begged that these gods would provide them security from military invasions. They worshipped and in such a way hoping that God would make their families fertile so they would have lots of children and grandchildren. Because back then you were a little part of, part of like little nation states. You didn't have a, mili- a national military protecting you or a police force. You had to have a really, 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 really big family to give you a sense of security. Lots of boys growing up in that family who could bear arms. This is what they prayed for. They prayed for God to bless their crops so they'd have food. And so when they prayed to these idols, they were also praying politically, preserve us, protect us, keep us. And the psalmist is here saying, do not put your trust in false idols. And the same can be applied today to political institutions and and political parties and politicians themselves. Don't put your trust in these people or these institutions. They are not your saviors. They're not. They're not. But most of all, panic displeases God. Psalm 97 reminds us that our fundamental posture as we interact politically with the difficulties of this age, should be a joyful confidence in God. If you read through Psalm 97 again, this isn't just some church service liturgy that is being offered here. That's absent from any pain or suffering. The person who wrote this, possibly David or one of the other psalmists, senses the threat of foreign invasion. And he says in that light, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in Him. Don't turn to false idols to try to thinking that you can worship other idols and that will protect you from certain countries or invaders. Don't do that. Don't do that. Any kind of political and social action should be rooted in a God dependence that issues in hope. If our political and social action is not rooted in a God dependence, then at a very deep level, my friends, we are rejecting God. We don't want His reign and His rule over our lives and over our land. We don't want that. Here's the second one. Seek God's glory first. Seek God's glory first. Psalm 97.6 The heavens proclaim His righteousness 
and the peoples see his glory. Boom. That's what this whole thing's going for. That people see his glory, that the heavens, which is in this sense, I think, saying that all of creation, every created molecule would praise and worship the living God. This is what it's all about. This is what our primary politic should boil down to. The worship of King Jesus. The worship of King Jesus. Did you know that God knows no national boundaries? Your map was drawn by people. I'm not saying that being a part of a country is inconsequential. I think it's very important. But that's not the way God looks at our world. God doesn't see a flat map on a wall with Australia down here and Greenland up here and the United States over here and Hawaii down there. God doesn't see it that way. God sees it different than we see it. God doesn't see national boundaries. He sees a smattering of ethnic groups all over the globe made in his image that he desires would experience his glory and his love. That's what God sees. That's what God sees. But oftentimes, our tribal, self-protective politics inoculate us from being able to experience the fervent love God has for other people groups because we are scared of them. God loves Hispanics. God loves Arabs. God loves black people and white people. God loves these ethnic groups all over our globe. He loves them as much as he loves you. Did you know that? As much as he loves you, sitting in this western, southeastern American church, God loves them as much as he loves you. Not based on any merit of their own, but because he is love personified. This is what this is all about. Our politics must converge on these ideas. If they don't, they will make us angry, panic-filled, terror-stricken, and mean-spirited. Our politics must be love. They must be. Now, the nuances of political ideology and action and all that stuff, that can be debated. There's a lot of gray room for that, a lot of gray area. But if our primary politic is not love, a love for this planet like God loves this planet, we are mistaken. We are mistaken. And that elusive feeling of pleasure we will get when finally the right person is office is in office will continue to be just that elusive elusive verse 1 does not say the lord reigns let america be glad it says let the earth be glad let the earth be glad we must have, my friends, God's global view of humanity. I'm not talking about the political idea of globalism. That's another issue all in, entirely. I'm talking about having God's global view of humanity. Our activism must serve God's global purpose. And Habakkuk 2.14 says it maybe most beautifully, that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Wonderful author Charles Hodge says these words. Take this in. God's glory, the revealing and acknowledgement worldwide of who he is, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. 
This great purpose drives history. Each nation's saga belongs to this larger one. The history of the United States, so full of God's blessing and goodness, is not for that reason a special history unto itself. It belongs together with the histories of Peru, Estonia, China, and Senegal to his story. To his story. Do I need to say it again or is that good? That was a mouthful. You want me to say it again? God's glory, the revealing and acknowledgement worldwide of who he is, what he has done, what he is doing, what he will do. This great purpose drives history. Each nation's saga belongs to this larger one. The history of the United States, so full of God's blessing and goodness, is not for that reason a special history unto itself. It belongs together with the histories of Peru, Estonia, China, and Senegal to his story. Now, you know he doesn't mean just those five or six countries, right? That's just a sampling of everybody. All right. So our greatest political ambition, my friends, mustn't be the preservation of our way of life. And that is the idol that we are facing. It must not be the preservation of our way of life. Because the preservation of our way of life makes people who seem like a threat our enemies. And God loves them. God wants us to pray for them. God wants us to go to them, bring the gospel to them, not be biased against them. It must be, our greatest political ambition must be a self-sacrificing burden to see the nation's Filled with the glory of God. I want to stop for a second and and just make a point. Don't put words in my mouth right now. I'm not making any policy declarations. I am not showing my hand, nor will I, while I do this series. I am not endorsing any particular political platform or political persuasion. I'm talking generally about our posture as followers of Jesus. Our posture. And so you might object. So are you saying that I don't I shouldn't engage in political action which seems to which might improve my way of life? Should I like want my way of life to be bad now and terrible? That's not what I'm saying. If we can end poverty, then let us end poverty to the glory of Jesus. If we can curb systemic racism, then let us curb and eliminate systemic racism to the glory of Jesus. If we can end violence in our streets, let us end violence in our streets to the glory of Jesus. Let us do that. That's not what I'm talking about though right now. What I'm talking about is that in your political activity, I want you to ask yourself this huge question. What is your controlling center? What is your controlling center? Lift up the hood, find that core motive of what drives your political thinking. What is your controlling center? Fear over the potential of losing our way of life or a growing passion 
for the glory of Jesus. A man cannot serve two masters. He will hate one and love the other, Jesus said. I know he was talking about money, but I can't think of two more opposing views. The preservation of my way of life versus living for the glory of Jesus. We must face this. I am not saying that we should not care about our lives. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. But we should care far more deeply and more centrally about such a, the meaning of the entire universe, the glory of Jesus. The glory of Jesus. This brings up the third one, and this sort of will help maybe explain the second one. Hate evil. Don't just dislike it. Don't lose an affinity for evil. Despise it. Reject it. Hate it. Call it what it is. A demonic invention. Hate it. Psalm 97.2 Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Why does it say that clouds and thick darkness are all around him when the book of Hebrews says that he, you, you, he is, he's surrounded by uh, unapproachable light? What is he trying to say here? I think what he's trying to say poetically is this, that God is morally unapproachable by every single person on planet earth, whether you're American, Chinese, Australian, British, whatever you are. God is morally unapproachable. He is perfect. He is absolutely holy and we are not. His throne rests on righteousness and justice. What is the psalmist trying to say here? That every act of God is good and fair and righteous and perfect. I know we look at the world in front of us and see so much terror and heartache. But every decision that God has ever made or ever will make is rooted in his moral perfection and his sovereign wisdom. This is, what, this is why we have to have faith. We've got to trust him that he really is good. He reigns over all things and we can rejoice in him. We can do that. So we must examine our own hearts. It is incredible how well we think we know every motive and intention of Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. But do we examine our own hearts with that same scrutiny? Those are people, right? They're people, right? Just say it. I know you don't want to say it. They're people. You might say, well, one of them is, you know, I think. They're people. When does it get to a point where we're gossiping and slandering someone and committing that sin? When does that start? Does that not apply to politicians? Or should we not do what Peter said and say, honor the emperor in his letter, a man who slaughtered Christians routinely? As a matter of fact, had Christians impaled on poles, stuck in his flower beds, and lit on fire to illuminate his evening walks. Peter said about that emperor, honor the emperor. I don't know how he did that. I don't know if I could have written those words. 
But what about our hearts? What about our baggage? What about our sin? We know Hillary Clinton's sin so well. We know Donald Trump's sin so well. What about our sin? What about the condition of our hearts? Because we're not going to give an account for Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump one day. We're going to stand before the majestic King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Yahweh himself, and we will give an account of our own behavior. And he won't give a flip who we voted for in November. He really won't. He won't. Psalm 97.10 Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. Like the way I said evil? Evil. Did that help? Yeah, I think that helped. Evil. Hate it, man. More than loving a way of life, we must hate evil. And that begins, my dear brothers and sisters, with the evil lurking in our own hearts. You'll know that you're growing in a Jesus-centered hatred of evil when you can sorrow over your own sins more than that of the culture. When you're outraged over your own impulsive sinfulness more than that of the surrounding culture. You'll know you have a Jesus-centered hatred of evil when conversely you experience a softening in your heart towards people you disagree with. The scriptures say that we should always speak gently with one another. Gently. You'll notice a hatred of evil in your life and a love for Jesus when you find yourself monitoring your tone, your posture, the way you say words. Were they words that were meant to harm Or as Paul said, let everything you say edify, build up, strengthen. doesn't mean that what we say has to be agreed with or disagreed with. It's just how we say it, the posture of our heart. Will we repent of that? No nation on earth, my friends, has ever enjoyed the special relationship that ancient Israel had with God. And that includes America. No no nation has ever had that special relationship with God that Israel had. And yet Israel, because of her sin, did not escape the severe judgment of God. We need to look at our hearts. We We need to do something. Political action may extend to voting. It should. Political action may extend to some sort of Uh, protest or uh, serving in some sort of a political issue or social issue campaign. Political issue may go there. But before political action goes there, it needs to start with repentance here. And stay with repentance here. So I'm going to ask you a question. So You'll notice that there's some notes in your bulletin that you could have filled in if you you noticed that. But there's a um, statement... In the bulletin, at the very bottom of the notes, that asks these questions. Did God impress anything on your heart this morning that you needed to hear? If so, what? And whatever that was, just write that down. If you need to go like this, if it's too embarrassing, you can do that. (laughs) 
And then finally, the most important part of today's message or today's a waste of time. How can you obediently respond to God's dealings with you? What do you need to confess? What do you need to pray about? What do you need to cut off? What do you need to do to obediently respond to this? We're going to close. Uh, we, you'll notice that the uh, that I sort of try to trick you today. I'm talking about a thorny issue, but I gave you a great gift, and that is we're ending way earlier. So it's like, you know, love them or hate them. I don't know. Um, <laughs> But this is our new service order, at least for the time being. And the reason we're doing this is because we want to leave ample time at the end of our service, if you choose to use it, to partake of the Lord's Supper. And then after the Lord's Supper concludes, I'm going to come up and give a final benediction and dismiss you, uh, and dismiss you formally. I'm asking if you pl- can, please stay. Most of y'all don't start leaving for another 15 or 20 minutes anyway. So if you leave now... I'll try not to judge you. Um, But we really want to keep you here for a few more minutes. Worship Jesus for a few minutes. Take the Lord's Supper. And contemplate God's Word. So as we always do, we go to the Lord's table. And we're reminded that what brought us all together as followers of Jesus is Jesus' ripped and torn and tortured body and his poured out blood. This is what makes us one. This was a political statement. He said, I'm bringing about a new covenant. What is a covenant? It's God's agreement with his nation of people. Well, we followers of Jesus are a new nation, and Jesus is our president. And he brought us together under his blood and his torn body. And so today I'm going to invite you, approach the Lord's table. You're going to notice that there are going to be people who are going to get together in groups and take it together. No pressure. If you don't want to do that, that's fine. There's no, there's no verse in the Bible that says, take the Lord's Supper in a circle of people. <laughs> so you might want to take it by yourself and just think and pray. Some people take the Lord's Supper with their families, their spouses. Whatever you do, take the Lord's Supper with reverence, a repentant heart, and examine yourself before God. Will you allow God to mess with your politics? I hope you do. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this time today. I thank you for your goodness. I pray, Lord God, that anything that was said today that was not of you would be scrubbed from the memory of every person here. And I pray, Jesus, that anything that was of you would stay with us that it would linger in our hearts, that it would change us. Help us to respond obediently, Lord, as we worship and partake of your supper in your name. Amen. You may partake of the Lord's Supper.